This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit shalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF. The One and the Many by R.J. Rushduni. Copyright 1971-2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Shalcedon Ross House Books. Chapter 8. Frederick II and Dante. The World Redivinized. Section 1. Medieval Civilization. Humanists, Roman Catholics and Protestants commonly err in their accounts of medieval civilization in that they ascribe to it a modern perspective with regard to the papacy and then either condemn or approve the Middle Ages in terms of their attitudes towards the claims of the papacy. Their historical perspective is thus conditioned by their reactions to an ecclesiastical dogma rather than by an examination of a culture. Because it was a Christian era, the humanist wrongly ascribed to it a lack of scientific and intellectual vigour. Because it was Catholic, Protestants ascribed to it a lack of biblical zeal and interest. But Thomas Aquinas was more conscientious and faithful in his adherence to scripture than are most Protestant Arminians and modernists whose faith is simply a degraded Thomism, lacking in Aquinas' faith and intelligence. The failure of Aquinas was not in ignorance of the Bible, but in the importation of Aristotelian thought into his apologetics. In 12th century England, in the Diocese of Worcester, a preacher had quoted poetry rather than the Bible in his sermon, and the congregation held an indignation meeting after church and compelled him to recant the following Sunday. Much earlier, before the Norman conquest, one can find in a major document, wherein the primacy of the papacy is affirmed, a thoroughly biblical and Protestant doctrine of the nature of the church as stated in Matthew 16, 15-19, wherein Christ defines the rock on which he will, will build his church. It is difficult to find as clear a statement in most Protestant commentaries. Quote, Jesus then said, What say ye that I am? Peter answered him, Thou art Christ, the living God's Son. The Lord to him said for answer, Blessed, blessed art thou, Simon, dove's child, etc. Bede the expounder unveils to us the deepness of this lesson. The Lord said to Peter, Thou art rocken, literally stonen, having the same relation to stone as rocken to rock, golden to gold, earthen to earth, etc. For the strength of his faith and for the firmness of his confession, he received that name because he joined himself with steadfast mind to Christ, who is called a rock by the Apostle Paul. And I will build my church upon this rock, that is, upon the faith which thou confessest. All God's convocation is built upon the rock, that is, upon Christ, because he is the ground wall of all the structures of his own church. End quote. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic approaches the so-called medieval era believing that it possessed a modern papal unity and authority which did not then exist. It was, indeed, the very struggle for that unity which destroyed the culture and led to the chronic conflicts of succeeding eras. The earlier unity of Christendom had been a religious unity, a Christian unity, which was a reality in a decentralised civilization. 
the basic localism of feudal culture governed both church and state. The struggle of both the papacy and the empire was directed against one another, but it was also directed against feudalism, and both papacy and empire worked to subjugate church and state to their own authority. They used feudalism to destroy feudalism. When the ultimacy of the particulars of the many becomes progressively more and more imminent and less and less transcendent, then unity is denied as both bondage and fiction to the same degree as particularity is affirmed. Conversely, when unity moves from a transcendental to an imminent reality, particularity becomes an oppressive violation of true order, and the suppression of particularity becomes a necessity for the realisation of social order. The validity of the imminent one and many, and of the creaturely one and many, is maintained only when the reality, primacy, and ultimacy of the transcendental one and many are clearly and sharply maintained, upheld, and defined. With Innocent the Third, eleven ninety eight to twelve sixteen, the papacy asserted the supreme authority of one sphere over all other spheres. In his consecration sermon on St. Peter's Sunday, February 22nd, 1198, Pope Innocent spoke on Matthew 24:45. "Who thinkest thou is a faithful and wise servant, wise servant, whom his Lord hath appointed over his family to give them meat in due season?" End quote. The sermon is the key to his statesmanship in the 16 years to come, according to Clayton. Pope Innocent declared himself to be, quote, under God, yet above man, less than God, but greater than man, appointed to judge all men, but judged, but, but to be judged by none, End quote. You see then who is the servant placed by his Lord over his household? He, oh, sorry, this is a quote. He is the vicar of Jesus Christ, the successor of Peter, the anointed of the Lord God of Pharaoh, one set as an intermediary between God and man, under God yet above man, less than God but greater than man. He is Peter in the fullness of his power, appointed to judge all men but to be judged by none, since as the apostle has said, he, he that judgeth me is the Lord, from 1 Corinthians 4. 4. End quote. But the monarchs, and the emperor as well, increasingly made similar claims for themselves. Their sacramental consecration made them rex et sacerdos, whereby the ruler not only became, quote, the chosen mediator between clergy and people, but also imposed on him the duty of ruling his church. The king did not need to ally with a church which was tied to him by proprietary and sacerdotal bonds. It was his church, and he was its divinely appointed ruler. End quote. One clergyman ascribed primacy to the king. The anonymous of York held the bishops of the realm to be subordinate to the king, as it was held that the son is to the father, a definitively subordinationist Christology. According to Tellenbach's summary of this position, quote, for him, the king embodies the divine, the priests, the human nature of Christ. Christ was both king and priest, but the king in him was the higher. The church is the bride not of Christ as priest, but of Christ as king. And he even dares to point out that the church is called queen, not priestess. End quote.
According to Williams, quote, the prevailing imagery is royal rather than sacerdotal. Christ as rex et sacerdos is divinely king and only humanly a priest, end quote. In earlier thinking, the concept of sovereignty was reserved to God alone. It was this absence of sovereignty that was revived in colonial America and in the constitutional settlement to make of the United States a Protestant feudal restoration. Christian Europe, after the fall of Rome, developed a social order which reserved sovereignty to God. According to Kern, quote, Certainly, the monarchy... The monarchical principle, even in this form, precluded any idea of popular sovereignty. The people in the Middle Ages were no more regarded as sovereign than was the monarch. If we wish to use this inappropriate expression at all for the Middle Ages, we may only say God is sovereign, and the law, which binds both the monarch and the community, is equally sovereign, so long as it does not run counter to God. The monarch, on the one hand, and the community, on the other, are joined together in theocratic order in such a way that both are subordinate to God and to the law. This fundamental conception will be fully discussed later. The point here is that in the Middle Ages, the monarchical principle, or the monarch's divine mandate, had not yet freed the monarch from dependence upon popular will as the later theory of divine right freed him. The monarchical principle was, indeed, strong enough to hinder the emergence of a democratic principle at a time when even the head of a local community was conceded some measure of self-sufficiency in the exercise of his functions, when he was entrusted with a mandate for which he was responsible only to God with a guardianship. But the monarchical principle was an ideal concept rather than one of positive law. It did not relieve the individual possessor of power from the particular legal obligations which he assumed towards the community at the time of his admission to office or afterwards. There was a transcendental element in government as such, but the individual holder of power, whether in a small community or in a monarchy, could not base his personal and subjective claim to rule upon this entirely general principle. A particular legal title was essential and such a title could, in the early Middle Ages, be obtained only from the people. End quote. In addition, quote, it is the individual's task to protect the law against all, even against the state. End quote. The concept that all men were subordinated to one infallible, supreme, and superhuman justice manifested on earth, whether in church or empire, was alien to Christian Europe. Church, state and empire introduced this concept to the degree that Aristotelian and other pagan thought infected their thinking. Some thinkers ascribed a redemptive function to the state. John of Jandon held that the promotion of the good life is the concern of the state. Both churchmen and monarchs began to identify themselves very closely with God and Christ. Not only in their order, but also in their disorder, they believed and they manifested God. Of Henry II, 1154-1189, of England, here says, quote, Henry II, who threw himself to the ground and bit the carpet in his rages, said on more than one occasion, The displeasure and wrath of Almighty God are also my displeasure and wrath. By nature I am a son of wrath. Why should I not rage? God himself rages when he is wrathful. End quote. 
Section 2. Frederick II. <clears throat> In Frederick II, 1194 to 1250, Hohenstaufen, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Sicily and Jerusalem, we see the statist expression of the dream of unity as it manifested itself in the empire. Frederick, who, among other things, denied the virgin birth and life after death, is held to be a free thinker by many, but he clearly believed in his own divinity. Church order was a necessity to him in order to maintain imperial order, and Frederick took from Innocent III the idea of the Inquisition and put it to his own use to protect the ecclesiastical arm of the empire. In every area, his insistence on imperial control was relentless. Quote, the dictum Frederick II placed over his symbolic statue on the Capuan Gateway characterises his mental temper at the time. Quam miseros facio quos variare scio. I shall make miserable those who are variable in spirit. End quote. Frederick could speak so openly because he was confident of his divine ordination to enforce unity in terms of imperial justice. A man of great intelligence and practical abilities, he was known as the wonder of the world, thus combining his sense of divine calling with the power to further it. Frederick, whose name meant rule of peace, Germanic Friday, peace, and Rick, rule, saw himself as the one called to interest institute a new world order of peace. At his birth, Frederick was hailed as the fulfilment of prophecy, as saviour and world ruler, king of all the world. Quote, After he was emperor, Frederick sang the praises of his birthplace in a remarkable document. He called Jesse his Bethlehem, and the divine mother who bore him he placed on the same plane as the mother of our Lord. End quote. The background to this thinking was the work of Abbot Joachim of Flora, died 1202, a remarkable figure, possibly of Jewish descent, who grew up in Greek southern Italy, whose influence was extensive in the medieval world, and on Columbus, whose writings were printed in Venice during the Renaissance and Reformation eras, and who influenced the modern era through Lessing. The modern usage, Middle Ages, probably refer reflects Joachim's influence. Joachim held to a philosophy of history which was nominally Trinitarian, but actually anti-Christian. History was seen in three ages, one for each member of the Trinity. The first, the Age of the Father, represented the Old Testament and pre-Christian world. The second, or Middle Age, the Age of the Son, represented the then rapidly waning Christian era. The first was the age of creation, the second of redemption, the third of universal peace and brotherhood, the age of the spirit. Frederick announced himself as the one come to fulfill the law to usher in the age of peace. It was Frederick's calling to reduce to peace the peoples by the might of justice. Frederick saw himself as justice incarnate and, the ex and as the expected messianic king. His letters when wooing the populace of Rome, quote, are full of the belief that the fullness of time is at hand and that the world is about to be renewed. Renewal would mean reconstruction of the world in exactly the state in which it stood at the moment of the redemption in the days of Augustus. The Messiah Emperor, who is expected and who shall set up an empire of justice, must show himself the reviver of the ancient Roman Empire, 
the reincarnation of Augustus, Prince of Peace, restoring Imperial Rome to her old position in the world. End quote. <clears throat> the papacy dreamed of the unity of the world under its dominion. St. Francis preached what closely resembled the gospel of the Third Age, in that it reduced the church to a spiritual role and to a poverty that almost implied a surrender of the world to the state, a position some heretical Franciscans later took. Frederick saw the world renewed under the unity of the empire. He saw himself in continuity with the Christian era, but as the creator of the new post-Christian world of peace and unity. His coins, the golden Augustales, had not the slightest Christian sign or symbol. Quote, Independent of the Christian God, there reigns here a divus who summons men to faith in him, like a new Caesar Augustus. End quote. Frederick saw himself as the image of God and mediator of justice between God and man and as the logos of justice. Quote, the emperor must therefore be at once father and son, lord and servant of justicia, end quote. infallible in law as the pope was infallible in matters of faith. Phrases that Frederick applied to God were applied to Frederick by his courtiers, as though he were incarnate God. Quote, Who bindeth the corners of the earth and ruleth the elements? Quoted later, Thy power, O Caesar, hath no bounds. It excelleth the power of man, like unto a god. And quoted later, Wear the crown that beseems thy supernatural position. End quote. An imperial governor wrote, quote, Our forefathers looked no more eagerly for the coming of Christ than we do for thine. Come to free and rejoice us. Show thy countenance and we shall find salvation. This, is, this it is for which we groan. This for which we sigh, to rest under the shadow of thy wings. End quote. He was hailed as a harbour of salvation to them that believe. He was law incarnate upon earth. And his law code rested on this premise. Quote, the emperor taught that the state herself daily begets afresh the only true and valid law of God, that the living law of the temporal world is the living God himself, that the eternal and the absolute must themselves adapt and change with time if they are to remain living. This was a decisive break with the past. End quote. <clears throat> this meant that God's primary area was again the imminent world and that the world of time was the great arena of being, the area of determination. Quote, the eternal and the absolute must themselves adapt and change with time if they are to remain living, end quote, because the truest and fullest presence of God is in time, in the state, and in the person of the emperor. God is in time, and in time God is best expressed in the emperor. The third age was the age of this incarnation and hence the era of peace, because eternity was reconciled with time and the world united under the great Messiah King, the Emperor. To deny the Empire was to deny world peace and order. It was to deny justice, because the eternal order was contingent upon the temporal order, and eternity was determined by time. This Joachimite concept was widely held. Quote, the 13th century awaited daily, as no other had ever done, the end of the world, and the prophecies foretold the end of the world should be middle and beginning, 
should be alike redemption and creation. End quote. A part of this hope was the idea that the renewal of Rome was necessary for the end of the Middle Age and the renewal of time and beginning of the Third Age. The emperors were the first to seek the renewal of Rome, but they soon had two rivals, the papacy and then the Romans. Quote, the Caesar popes of the Middle Ages felt themselves to be the successors of the Roman Divi just as much as did the emperors, end quote. Basing their claim on the forged donation of Constantine, Frederick's state ended in total tyranny, and he became less and less the new Christ and more and more the Antichrist. The papacy won, only to fall victim to its own departure from its mission and the attendant destruction of Christian Europe. The triumph of imminent power is the death of meaning. God is he who is, beyond definition, because he is himself the definer and the source of all meaning. The world has meaning because he created it and is separate from it. To the extent that the world is absorbed into God and to the extent that God is absorbed into the world and sovereignty is transferred to the world. To that extent, the world loses meaning and becomes undefinable and a mystery. The total triumph of imminence would be the total loss of meaning. <clears throat> Section 3. Dante the demand that the church be purely spiritual was not only a demand that the church abdicate its responsibilities, but also that the church retreat to what the critics held to be the determined rather than the determining realm. If, quote, the eternal and the absolute, end quote, are determined by time and the living law of the temporal world, then to relegate the church to that spiritual realm is to relegate it to the subordinate and determined world. However, the attempt of the church to dominate the world in the same manner attempted by the empire meant that the church had accepted the same non-Christian premises concerning the priority of time and the temporal world. Such a position was more readily criticised in the church than in the state, and men could weep crocodile tears over the apostasy of the church simply because they found it a hindrance to the apostasies of state. One such weeper and rager was the poet Dante Alighieri, Alighieri, 1265-1321, who succeeded where Frederick failed and made statist heresy an adornment of Western culture and literature. According to scholar Giuseppe de Santis, Dante is a modern man. Bishop Giovanni Fellini, also speaking at the 700-year anniversary of Dante's birth in Florence, Italy, in April 1965, at the Palazzo Vecchio, said, quote, He worked for a united world, foreshadowing the United Nations by over 600 years. End quote. The framework of Dante's Divine Comedy was rich in Catholic piety, but the substance was subversive and modern, belonging to the Third Age. The fires of heresy burn more brightly in Dante than do the flames of Inferno. An historian has cited some of Dante's variations as they appear in his treatise on monarchy. Quote, Dante makes favourable allusions to the Averroist doctrine of the collective immortality of the soul, which stand in strange contradiction to his view of personal immortality upon which the divine comedy is based. He debates the traditional papal interpretation of the Petrine biblical text, claiming that from Christ's words to Peter, 
quote, it does not follow that the Pope can loose or bind the decrees of the Empire, end quote. He denies the validity of papal claims based on the donation of Constantine because, quote, Constantine had no power to alienate the imperial dignity, nor had the church the power to receive it, end quote. Most significant of all is Dante's argument for imperial authority, not only on the basis of tradition, law, and biblical texts, but also from a simple and radical doctrine of pragmatic necessity. The welfare of the human race, he says, is best advanced under monarchical rule. This represents a new departure in medieval political thought. The implication of Dante's argument is that political power is based on the sanction not only of divine and natural law, but also of social necessity. End quote. <clears throat> Here comments that there is scarcely a heretic of his times whose message he, Dante, ignores. Gilson granted that Dante's thought at points represented a form of Averroism, but held this to be purely formal and devoid of content. Dante's philosophy, Gilson maintained, differed clearly from Aquinas. Papini asserted that Dante, who believed that some men are almost as gods, Quote, almost certainly believed himself to be one of these men most noble and divine, that is, almost God. End quote. Dante's debt to Islamic thought has also been demonstrated as at least formally important. Section 4. Dante's view of the state. In Demonarchia, Dante's argument for imperial authority was, as has been noted, based on pragmatism. The ultimate goal of human civilization as a whole required this unity of power. Dante wrote that, quote, There is an ultimate goal for which the eternal God, by his art, which is nature, brings into being the human race in its universality. End quote. This ultimate goal is summarized by Wicksteed. Quote, it is the goal of civilization to realize all the potentialities of humanity by developing in peaceful cooperation all the several capacities of individuals, families, races, and so forth. End quote. The basic and first requisite for the realization of the goal of human civilization is for Dante, not faith, but peace. Quote, it is evident that in the quiet or tranquillity of peace, the human race is most freely and favorably disposed to the work proper to it. Whence it is manifest that universal peace is the best of all those things which are ordained for our blessedness. End quote. This separation of the faith from the realization of the goal of human civilization is not accidental. Dante radically separated man's spiritual goal, the celestial paradise, from the political goal, the terrestrial paradise, as two utterly different goals of the human race, to cite Kantorowicz's judgment. There was thus a human perfection and a Christian perfection, for Dante, quote, took the human out of the Christian compound and isolated it as a value in its own right, end quote. The political paradise could be attained by man through his own devices, through natural reason and the four cardinal virtues alone. Quote, against that totality of mankind which fell guilty potentially in the first man, Dante set the totality of mankind which potentially can regain its own dignities and paradise as well. 
it can achieve by its own power and through the intellectual virtues its own actuation in the terrestrial paradise whence Adam had been expelled, who, in the state of innocence, himself was the actuation of humanitas without restriction. Dante reversed, as it were, the potentialities. Just as Adam potentially bore mankind and sin in his limbs, so did mankind in its totality bear Adam and his perfection, his status subtilis, if we may say so, in its limbs. End quote. This thesis is basic also to the divine comedy. Christ is made irrelevant to this world. He is good medicine for dying, but not for living. The political order is the true path to the one world paradise under one monarch. Quote, Hence, as a consequence of his setting apart of humanitas from Christianitas, of virtutes intellectuales from virtutes infusae, terrestrial paradise from celestial paradise, Dante had to set apart also Adam from Christ and make the return to man's original image on earth independent of man's transcendental perfection in Christ by grace. In other words, Dante had to cleanse man from the peccatum originale in non-sacramental fashion. End quote. In the realization of this earthly paradise with its totality under a ruler, its total unity under a ruler, the one is greater than the many, and the part exists for the sake of the whole, for the part is related to the whole as to its end and supreme good. The world must be under one monarch, even as the universe is one under God as its monarch, and it is God's purpose that this universal order be approximated in the human order by being unified. It is man's created function to be in God's image. Quote, but the human race is most likened to God where it is most one, for it is in him alone that the absolute principle of the one exists. End quote. Although Dante affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, his ascent was defective in that he exalted unity over multiplicity instead of affirming equal ultimacy. Man's true freedom is in unity, according to Dante, since, quote, the more universal a cause is, the more fully has it the nature of a cause. And the more a cause is a cause, the more does it love its effect. End quote. As a consequence, quote, since the monarch is the most universal of mortal causes of the well-being of men, since the other princes are so through him, it follows that the good of men is more loved by him than by any other. End quote. In other words, the more total the power of the world ruler, the more impartial and loving his power, and the greater man's freedom is as a result. In the banquet, Dante affirmed the imperial office to be the promotion of the perfection of human life, adding, quote, It is the director and ruler of all our operations, and justly so, for however far our operations extend beyond extend themselves, so far the imperial majesty has jurisdiction, and beyond those limits it does not reach. End quote. Beyond that, how could it reach? Its goal and province is quote, the perfection of the universal union of the human race. End quote. <clears throat> this total unity must be of a radical sort. For Dante, quote, 
It is clear then that everything which is good is good in virtue of consisting in unity. And since concord as such is good, it is manifest that it consists in some unity as in its proper root. End quote. This concord or unity requires the unity of human wills under one ruler. This is through totalitarianism, the unmitigated tyranny of the one. Wicksteed commented, it is only in the unity that things really exist for Dante's philosophy. The world order Dante defended was a continuation of the Roman Empire. For him, ancient pagan Romans were a most holy race and a chosen people, and its many heroes had, he maintained, divine inspiration. Quote, and certainly I am of the firm opinion that the stones which remain in her walls are worthy of reverence, and it is asserted and proved that the ground whereupon she stands is worthy beyond all other that is occupied by man. End quote. Rome, for Dante, was that holy city. His philosopher was Aristotle, who is most worthy of faith and obedience, and whose words are a supreme and chief authority. Quote, Aristotle is the master and leader of human reason insofar as it aims at its final operation. End quote. History was the proof of Roman eminence, and this meant nature. And what nature has ordained, it is right to maintain. Rome was invested with a messianic role by Dante. He cited Psalm 2, the messianic psalm concerning the world conspiracy against the Messiah, and applied it to Rome as Messiah. The authority, righteousness and justice of Rome was upheld by Dante and affirmed to have been confirmed in the execution of Jesus Christ. Pilate punished the sin of Adam in crucifying Christ so that, in Wicksteed's summary, quote, the rightful authority of the Roman Empire is essential to the whole scheme of salvation. End quote. In Dante's words, if the Roman Empire was not right, the sin of Adam was not punished in Christ. The same point was emphasised in the Divine Comedy. Quote, As for the penalty, then, inflicted by the cross, if it be measured by the nature taken on, never did any other bite as justly. End quote. The enemy of the empire is the church and the clergy. The goal of the empire and of the monarch is the perfection of the human race, and with this perfection the empire becomes obsolete and withers away. Man, then, needs neither ecclesiastical nor imperial guidance for authority, for, quote, such regimens, then, are remedial against the infirmity of sin, end quote. As a result, quote, if man had remained in the state of innocence in which he was made by God, he would have no need of such directive regimens. And quoted later, these regiments exist to direct men to certain ends, end quote, and they are then no longer needed. Hence, when Dante in the Divine Comedy reached the entrance to the Garden of Eden, Virgil declared, I do crown and mitre thee over thyself. According to Wicksteed, quote, in Dante's opinion, man would not have needed the church as an organised institution any more than the empire had he not fallen from the state of innocence. Accordingly, when he recovers that state, he is absolved from the spiritual as well as from the temporal rule. End quote. Dante placed an affirmation of communism in Virgil's Council. Quote, For by so many more there are 
For by so many more there are who say ours, so, so much the more of good doth each possess, and the more of love burneth in that cloister. End quote. This is grounded in the doctrine of God's nature, whereby his love continually gives, and those who receive it reflected by their love. His inferno has an unfavourable reference to Fra Dolcino, who taught the community of goods and women. The reference to Fra Dolcino does not condemn his communism, but rather includes him in the category of those creating disorder, so as of scandal and schism. Lindsay's opinion is justified in that, quote, In Book 15 of The Inferno, Dante expressed his belief in the Golden Age, and he states explicitly that the principle of social progress was the actualization of communism to the greatest extent possible at each stage. End quote. Until that day, the emperor was Dante's earthly Christ and saviour. In Epistola VII, written to the emperor, Dante said he had raised the hopeful messianic question. Art thou he who should come, or do we look for another? Dante answered in faith, quote, Yet, although long thirst, as it is wont, in its frenzy turneth to doubt, just because they are close at hand, even those things which are certain, nevertheless we believe and hope in thee, averring that thou art the minister of God, and the son of the church, and the promoter of Roman glory. And I too, who write for myself and for others, have seen thee, as beseems imperial majesty, most benignant, and have heard thee most clement when that my hands handled thy feet and my lips paid their debt. Then did my spirit exult in thee, and I spoke silently within with myself, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who hath taken away the sins of the world. End quote. Section 5. The Witness of the Divine Comedy the universe for Dante is a great cosmic state governed by justice, and true love is true justice. This cosmic justice is thus more closely connected to a world state than to a universal church. The subject of the Divine Comedy is not ecclesiastical and theological, but rather historical and political. The three parts of the Commedia represent justice under three aspects. Dante's universe is the universe of the great chain of being. Quote, everything in existence strives to return to its source. As fire by nature is drawn upwards, so the human soul is drawn to God. End quote. This upward movement is not mystical, but political. The world state is the agency until man becomes perfected and deified, when anarchism and communism take over. Quote, the blessed are made deiform. The heavenly bliss is to participate in the Godhead, and the soul becomes a partaker of the divine nature. End quote. <clears throat> to summarise the divine comedy briefly, Dante is lost and in deep distress. The disorders of the world, its political decay, and his own sufferings and despair on that account, have grieved him and led him astray. Quote, in the moment, it seemed, of his final defeat, he was confronted with Virgil, historically his ideal poet, the model and inspiration of his verse, and symbolically his reason and conscience, 
the primal authority for man's earthly life. End quote. Virgil is at once the prophet of the Roman Empire and the supposed foreteller of Christ, who foretells the coming of a deliverer of the world from the power of covetousness, the wolf that came so persistently against Dante. The saviour whom Virgil foretells is the Viltro. As Gilbert noted, quote, Deliverance will come through the mysterious hound, the Veltro, which is the opposite of the wolf in freedom from avarice and devotion to wisdom, love and virtue. The Veltro is obviously also a political deliverer who will save Italy. End quote. The journey through hell is a journey through a world where sins are sins against unity and wholeness, inordinate loves of the partial or particular as against the one and the true object of love. They are more sins against order than against the person of God, and the framework of reference is Italy and the Empire. It is unnecessary to know the Bible to read Dante intelligently. It is necessary to know imperial and Italian history, or else have a well-documented text of the Divine Comedy as a guide. At the beginning of the journey, in Canto 2, the issue of the relationship of Aeneas and Paul of Empire and Church is raised. Dante does not give us any of the old answers. His is to be a new one, and he is the new Aeneas, journeying through the underworld to give a fresh answer. In giving this answer, Dante, for all his professed humility, claimed the authority of Virgil, prophet of empire, ostensible foreteller of Christ, and symbol of the power of natural reason. He also claimed the power of Beatrice, the power of divine wisdom and illuminated reason, Beatrice, whom he had hailed in one poem of the Vita Nuova as salvation. Beatrice will lead Dante, together with Virgil, to true order and to the ingodding of the self, the taking of the self into God. Beatrice is not only sent by Mary, she is also a type of Mary and, in her analogical sense, a type of the church triumphant. This by no means exhausts the meaning of Beatrice. What is clear is that the persons and symbols of the church are stripped from the church and piled onto the empire. St. Lucy, this spirit of enlightenment, the medium between grace and revelation, is also on the side of Dante and the empire. Very early we begin to meet churchmen in hell, beginning in Canto 3, in the class of the trimmers, with one commonly identified as Pope Celestine V. The goal of being is the realisation of potentiality and unity in the great chain of being. Hell is the perfection of the disruption of this cosmic unity. Quote, Every circle is the perfection of a sinful power. The perfection of a sinful power is its tyranny over other powers. Every sinful soul can find an ideal kingdom in the inferno for the perfect tyranny of its sinful power. This is the irony of perfection in hell. End quote. Every soul is in hell voluntarily and remains out of desire, Dante stressed in Canto 3, 124 and following. Quote, they are eager to cross the river, for divine justice so spoke so spurs them that fear turns to desire. End quote. Hell is the perfection of the partial and the limited, of individuality and of particularity. 
It is also the perfection of matter. In hell, the damned have bodies. In purgatory and paradise, they are pure spirit. Dante damned churchmen for their materialism and placed the church on the side of materialism and the empire on the side of spirit and idealism. The donation of Constantine is denounced in hell as an instrument of hell. When Dante, in Canto 19, denounced the donation, Virgil, the voice of reason at these words of truth, took Dante in both his arms. In this canto, Dante sets forth the public wrong of simony, but he includes in this sin the claim of the church against the political order as a kind of simony, a worship of gold and silver, a heathenism. Quote, a singular and significant feature of the canto is that Dante is not merely led and instructed by Virgil here as elsewhere, but, after an ardent declaration of his discipleship, he is carried down to Nicholas and up again, and the narrative stresses Virgil's carefulness in the act. For here, peculiarly, Dante claims to be identified with reason, which is not merely his own reason, but reason itself. Virgil, besides, represents the empire, the righteous ordering of the earthly life of humanity and authority under God, and its high obligation to guard the frontiers of its jurisdiction against ecclesiastical encroachment where fundamental, sorry, were fundamental in Dante's thinking and are the main matter of, demo, of the demonic monarchia. End quote. The deeper Dante takes us into hell, the more political the sins become, those who traffic the public office, barators, the sowers of scandal and schism, rebels and traitors, and the like. The offences are all either against the great unity or in favour of the particular, and the limited, the divisive. The arch-traitor Satan represents the uttermost depth of hell for his rebellion against God, and Satan was joined by Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. The sins of Satan and Judas were against the kingdom of God. Those of Brutus and Cassius against the divinely chosen instrument for the restoration of the earthly paradise, Rome. According to Sinclair, in speaking of Canto 28, and citing Dante's belief in the essential organic unity of men, Dante condemned fiercely these makers of discord, because he saw providence and every divine purpose working for the unity of mankind. <clears throat> Each portion of the divine comedy ends with the word stars. Quote, for the stars mean for Dante all the good that is beyond the world, all the perfect order and the working providence of God, and it is into obedience that order and assurance of that providence that all his experience and all the leading of Virgil and the memory and the hope of Beatrice are bringing him. End quote. Having shown us the hell that churchly politics leads to, and all divisive movements, whether based on personal lusts or political opposition, Dante now depicted purgatory, that is, the world restored, paradise regained, the Garden of Eden and primeval anarchism re-established by means of the world state. Wicksteed's summary of the central idea of Dante's Purgatoriorus is to the point. Quote, Therefore, when man fell, he forfeited immediately the perfect earthly life and ultimately the perfect heavenly life. 
His first task then must be to recover the life of the earthly paradise, and as purgation or recovery from the fall consists primarily in regaining Eden, the mountain pedestal of the Garden of Eden becomes by necessity of symbolic logic the scene of purgation. Physically and spiritually man must climb back to the uplifted garden. Hence the keynote of the Purgatorio is primarily ethical and only by implication spiritual. Cato, the type of moral virtues, is the guardian of the place. Visual, the type of human philosophy, is the guide. And the earthly paradise, the type of blessedness of this life, Demon 3.16, is the immediate goal. Beatrice is only realised by Dante as he had known her in the Eden-like new life of his youth, and by no means as the august impersonation of revealed truth. She appears to him in due course, surrounded by her escort, when he has reached the state of earthly perfection, and the vacancy of that region of earthly bliss is explained to him by the vision of false and confused government, wherein is portrayed the failure of church and state to bring man back to the life of Eden. To the church as an earthly organisation, or regimen, the grace of God has committed by anticipation such revealed truth as is necessary to help the enfeebled will of man to recover the state of Eden. But the church as a regimen is not to be confounded with Revelation, Beatrice, herself. The proper office of the church as a regimen ends when the proper office of Beatrice begins. See De Monarchia 3.4. End quote. The choice of Cato, a pagan, as the guardian of purgatory and the road to the earthly paradise is a most significant one. Cassius and Brutus are in hell for killing Caesar. Cato, another great enemy of Caesar, is given high honour because he committed suicide, an act, according to Dante, of supreme devotion to liberty. It was also, in a sense, an act of surrender to Caesar. Caesar cannot be resisted, in Dante's thought. Cato is the philosopher of the Roman state and of civic virtue, and it is civic virtue in terms of the world empire that will lead men to the earthly paradise. The culminating vision of the Purgatorio in Canto 33 is of a political messiah who shall establish the proper relationships of church and state and purge them both of their errors. Frederick II shall have a true and holy heir. Quote, not for all time shall we be without heir the not for all time shall be without heir the eagle that left the plumage on the cart whereby it became a monster and then a prey. End quote. <coughs> we have noted that in De Monarchia, Canto three, line five, Dante stated that church and state were both products of the fall. The goal of both must be to undo the fall, which means to undo themselves and to abdicate, so that man, without church and state, will, by his own will, live the perfect life, the life of happiness. For, quote, The chief good and final end of man is happiness, which has been compared to a tower consisting of moral virtue as the base, intellectual virtue as the spire, and the act of contemplation as the crowning point final end and realisation of the whole structure. It is possible that such an idea may be represented in the spheres assigned respectively to Visual, Matilda and Beatrice, the trinity of teachers in the Divine Comedy.
End quote. When Dante reached the goal of purgatory, the Garden of Eden, Virgil, symbolic of the empire, declared, quote, No more expect my word nor my sign. Free, upright and whole is thy will, and twere a fault not to act according to its prompting, wherefore I do crown and mitre thee over myself. End quote. The meaning is obvious. The restored man, restored by the empire, by Virgil and Cato, are no longer needs either no longer needs either church or state, he is his own church and state. Dante's Paradiso is the paradise of this restored humanity. All things are reconciled within it. Francis and Dominic, Aquinas and Siger, Christian and Pagan, and many others. Joachim of Flora is also present. In this third stage of mankind, all coexist, or almost all, for the Apostle Peter himself is chosen, in Canto 27, to denounce the papacy. They are in garb of pastors, ravening wolves. Peter declared that the papacy had made his burial place a sewer for the blood and filth by which the perverse one, that is Satan, finds relief, in that the papacy is like a second and worse fall, to use William's phrase. Very plainly, the church was doing the devil's work in Dante's opinion. As Canto 15 made clear, Unity is the goal of being, and absorption into God, Canto 14.29. The orthodox doctrines of heaven are given lip service, but the heathen are given ground for hope of moral perfection and heaven apart from Christ in Cantos 19 and 20. Aristotle's philosophy is given high status and authoritative character in Cantos 24, 26 and 28. In the Inferno, we meet the perverse form of Homo Dei as Cerebrus. In the Purgatorio, Canto 23, the germ of the celestial eagle is on the face of every penitent. In the Paradiso, Canto 18, the celestial ego is the perfected form of the Homo Dei. This is the symbol of Roman law and justice. According to Swing, the Trinity is represented by Dante's guides. Quote, Virgil is the symbol of the sun, Beatrice is that of the Holy Spirit, and St. Bernard is that of the Father. End quote. Quote, the function of the sun is to show how to die and be buried in sin and how to be reborn in grace. Virgil shows Dante the way into the underground world of sin and takes him down to the bottom of perdition. It is Virgil who wrenches Dante from the bottom of the sinful grave and takes him out of the world out to the world of grace. Virgil's function is to show Dante the way of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Virgil wishes to make a veiled announcement of his function when he tells Dante at his initial appearance that he was born sub Julio in one seventy. His birth sub Julio is meant to help us to conceive his function in the light of the visible mission of the sun, who sub pontio pilato passus et saputus est, et resurrexit tertia die secundum scripturis, the Nicene Creed. Christ rose again on the third day. Virgil emerges with Dante out of hell on the third day. <clears throat> 
On seeing Christ after his resurrection, the disciples came up and embraced his feet and worshipped him, from Matthew 28.9. On meeting Virgil in the Purgatorio, his disciples in poetry try to embrace his feet and worship him. End quote. If this be true, then the Paradiso involves Christ as a foundation, as is also the Empire, but both are transcended to achieve the glory of the great unity. The culmination of the Paradiso, in Canto 33, strongly resembles the unity of mystical thought, for substance and accidents, and their relations, as though together fused, after such fashion that what I tell is of one simple flame. Dante clearly shared this perspective. His goal of unity involved deification as the goal of man's freedom. Quote, this freedom, or this principle of all our freedom, is the greatest gift conferred by God on human nature, for, though, for through it we have our felicity here as men, through it we have our felicity elsewhere as deities. End quote. Dante used the facade of Catholic faith. The church, was, the church wisely recognized his hostility to it, and quickly placed demonarchia on the index as well as recognizing the heresy in the Divine Comedy. Papini was correct in observing of Dante's Divine Comedy. Quote, he proposes, in a way, to write a new gospel intended to contemplate the redemption of mankind. And therefore, he dares to make himself the herald of a new manifestation of the divinity who comes to save. End quote. The Veltro. But Dante's faith came gradually to be equated with true faith. On April 30th, 1921, the 600th anniversary of Dante's death, Pope Benedict XV, in his encyclical In, pra In Praia Clara, quote, repeatedly cited with praise the Demonarchia, that work which for so many centuries languished on the index. End quote. Section 6. Pope John XXIII. Dante had many allies now. Modernism, modern Judaism, Freemasonry, Illuminism, and many other movements, all aiming at creating paradise on earth on the foundation and in the power of men and of men of goodwill. The end of the Christian world was openly desired by many and a post-Christian era called for. It was with great rejoicing that such forces hailed the encyclical of Pope John the twenty third on April the tenth, nineteen sixty three, addressed, among others, quote, to men of to all men of goodwill on establishing universal peace in truth, justice, charity, and liberty. End quote. In part four of the encyclical, Pope John declared modern states insufficient to ensure the universal common good. More was clearly needed. But his answer was not Christian law in these modern states, but rather a world commodity. Quote, As is known, the United Nations Organization, UNO, was established on June 26, 1945, and to it there were subsequently added intergovernmental agencies with extensive international tasks in the economic, social, cultural, educational and health fields. 
the United Nations Organization had as its essential purpose the maintenance and consolidation of peace between peoples, fostering between them friendly relations based on the principles of equality, mutual respect and varied forms of cooperation in every sector of human society. An act of the highest importance performed by the United Nations Organization was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, approved in the General Assembly of December 10, 1948. In the preamble of that declaration, the recognition and respect of those rights and respective liberties is proclaimed as an ideal to be pursued by all peoples and countries. Some objections and reservations were raised regarding certain points in the declaration. There is no doubt, however, that the document represents an important step on the path towards the juridical-political organisation of the world community. For in it, in, it, in most solemn form, the, the dignity of a person is acknowledged to all human beings. And as a consequence, there is proclaimed as a fundamental right, the right of free movement in the search for truth and in the attainment of moral good and justice, and also the right to a dignified life, while other rights connected with those mentioned are likewise proclaimed. It is our earnest wish that the United Nations Organisation, in its structure and in its means, may become ever more equal to the magnitude and nobility of its tasks, and that the day may come when every human being will find therein an effective safeguard for the rights which derive directly from his dignity as a person, and which are therefore universal, inviolable, and inalienable rights. This is all the more to be hoped for, since all human beings, as they take an ever more active part in the public life for their own political communities, are, shown, are showing an increasing interest in the affairs of all peoples, and are becoming a more conscious and are becoming more consciously aware that they are living members of a world community. End quote. The Pope's concern was the world community, not the Christian community, and his hope was for a just world order based on man as man rather than Christian man. The echoes of Joachim, Dante, Modernism and Masonic ideas were clearly in evidence. The Pope denied that an ongoing historical movement such as a state and its history could be equated or identified with its false doctrine. The comment of Father J.F. Cronin SS on this passage was that, quote, Pope John notes that even in communism there are elements of truth and idealism, end quote. Pope John did not refer to the USSR, although his generalization very clearly included it, and his statement implied more than Father Cronin stated, quote, It must be borne in mind, therefore, furthermore, that neither can false philosophical teachings regarding the nature, origin and destiny of the universe and of man be identified with historical movements that have economic, social, cultural or political ends, not even when these movements have originated from those teachings and have drawn and still draw insp inspiration therefrom. Because the teachings, once they are drawn up and defined, remain always the same, while the movements working on historical situations in constant evolution cannot but be influenced by these latter and cannot avoid, therefore, being subject to changes even of a profound nature. 
Besides, who can deny that those movements, in so far as they conform to the dictates of reason and are interpreters of the lawful aspirations of the human person, contain elements that are positive and deserving of approval? It can happen, then, that a drawing nearer together for a meeting for the attainment of some practical end, which was formerly deemed inopportune, is useful. End quote. It is not surprising that the, quote, major communist parties of Western Europe greeted the Pope's call for peace and disarmament, end quote, and regarded it with immense satisfaction. A little later, Cardinal Suenen, quote, represented Pope John at the United Nations in early May by presenting Secretary General Yu Thant a copy of the Pope's encyclical, Passum in Terras, end quote. <clears throat> Section 7. Pope Paul VI. Pope Paul VI, on August the 6th, 1964, in his encyclical Ecclesium Suum, declared that, quote, the Church must be ever ready to carry on the dialogue with all men of goodwill within and without its own sphere, end quote. The Pope saw concentric circles around himself. The first is humanity at large. Quote, 101. Wherever men are trying to understand themselves and the world, we can communicate with them. Wherever the councils of nations come together to establish the rights and duties of man, we are honoured when they allow us to take our seat among them. If there exists a soul which is naturally Christian, we desire to show it our respect and enter into conversation with it. End quote. These are words Dante would have rejoiced in. This circle includes atheistic communism and its denial of God. Pope Paul declared, We shall therefore resist with all our strength the assaults of this denial. The hostility came from communism, not from the Pope. Quote, 105. It could be said that it is not so much that we condemn these systems and regimes as that they express their radical opposition to us in thought and deed. Our regret is, in reality, more sorrow for a victim than the sentence of a judge. End quote. Communism insisted on an antithesis. The Pope did not. He reaffirmed Pope John's hope. Quote, 109. Accordingly, bearing in mind the words of our predecessor of venerable memory, Pope John XXIII, in his encyclical Passum in Terras, to the effect that the doctrines of such movements, once elaborated and defined, remain always the same, whereas the movements themselves cannot help but evolve and undergo changes even of a profound nature, we do not despair that, that they may one day be able in, to enter into a more positive dialogue with the Church than the present one, which we now of necessity deplore and lament." The second circle includes all monotheists, as the Pope classified them, and Paul assumed that the God of Judaism and of Islam, and of the great Afro-Asiatic religions, is the same God as the God of Scripture. Quote, 111. Then we see another circle around us. This too is vast in its extent, yet it is not so far away from us. It is made up of the men who above all adore the one supreme God whom we too adore. We refer to the children worthy of our refer, ref, 
of our affection and respect of the Hebrew people, faithful to the religion which we call that of the Old Testament. Then, to the adorers of the God according to the conception of monotheism, the Muslim religion especially, deserving of our admiration for all that is true and good in their worship of God, and also to the followers of the great Afro-Asiatic religions. Obviously, we cannot share in these various forms of religion, nor can we remain indifferent to the fact that each of them, in its own way, should regard itself as being the equal of any other, and should authorise its followers not to seek to discover whether God has revealed the perfect and definitive form, free from all error, in which he wishes to be known, loved, and served. Indeed, Honesty compels us to declare openly our conviction that there is but one true religion, the religion of Christianity. It is our hope that all men who seek God and adore him may come to acknowledge its truth. 112. But we do, nevertheless, recognise and respect the moral and spiritual values of the various non-Christian religions, and we desire to join with them in promoting and defending common ideals of religious liberty, human brotherhood, good culture, social welfare and civil order. For our part, we are ready to enter into discussion on these common ideals and will not fail to provide every opportunity for such discussion with genuine mutual respect where it would be well received. End quote. The third circle Paul cited is Christianity, and here the dialogue is ecumenical. The position of Pope Paul came close to being a pandeism, and pandeism is the logical development of the virus of Hellenic thought. It was not surprising, therefore, that Pope Paul, in his journey to India, declared that all men must begin together, begin to work together to build the common future of the human race. The Pope asked, quote, are we not all one in this struggle for a better world, in this effort to make available to all people those goods which are needed to fulfil their human destiny and live lives worthy of the children of God? End quote. Dante's dream was now the papal hope. In responding to his welcome, Pope Paul declared, quote, We come here as a pilgrim, a pilgrim of peace, of joy, of serenity and love. We extend our greeting to all the nations of Asia, to every nation in the world. May they always remember that all men are brothers under the fatherhood of the divinity. May they learn to love one another, to respect one another, to avoid violating the natural rights of others. May they even strive to respect these rights in truth, in justice and in love. End quote. It was not surprising, moreover, that Pope Paul sent a personal representative and a message to the Convocation of Religion for World Peace in San Francisco, Sunday, June 27, 1965, a union service of all religions celebrating the 20th anniversary of the United Nations organisation. The logic of his position called for it. Centuries earlier, Frederick II had succeeded in electing a friend to the papacy, only to find in Innocent IV, whom Kantorowicz has called Frederick's most remarkable pupil, almost his most ruthless enemy. In shocked dismay, Frederick exclaimed, No Pope can be a gibeline. 
To a degree, Frederick was right. No pope can be a gibberline, a champion of a world empire as the door to an earthly paradise, if he is a knowing champion of the orthodox faith, or if he be interested in protecting or advancing the power of his office and of the church. But a sincere idealist, implicitly pandeist in faith, deeply concerned with the problems of the world and of time, can be a gibberline pope, and Dante's gibberlines have at last triumphed. The world is being redivinized. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.